Catherine Nichols here with Isaac Butler, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our book is not a book, but Jenny Holzer's Truisms from 1978. Because this is closer to visual art than literature, we're very happy to have our guest joining us today. Robert Weisenberger is the Associate Curator of Contemporary Projects at the Clark Art Institute and the co-author of a book on Muriel Cooper. The truisms are a group of sentences that were first presented as street art, put up on posters all over New York City anonymously, though it was Holzer doing it. She presented them either alone or in groups, many different formats over the years. Instead of trying to summarize them, I'm going to read you a few of them. They're often presented alphabetically, um, and these are the ones that start with the letter L. Labor is a life-destroying activity. Lack of charisma can be fatal. Leisure time is a gigantic smokescreen. Listen when your body talks. Looking back is the first sign of aging and decay. Loving animals is a substitute activity. Low expectations are good protection. And with that, on to our conversation. Uh, this week, I am the person who chose uh, what we're talking about. I've, I'm the one who chose truisms. And my older relationship with this work is that I used to use these as writing prompts and that was before I realized that that was sort of how she had created them that she had taken I guess works of literature from a syllabus and had tried to distill each thing into a single sentence or phrase um and so I realized as um as Isaac said I was running the process in reverse uh they felt like like I could turn them into short stories or something like that. They felt um, like they wouldn't quite lie flat. There was something argumentative or sort of impossible to reconcile inside each of these sentences. And uh, anyway, I I wanted to learn more about them once I knew that, about uh, her, how she had developed them originally. And I thought, oh, hey, I'll just um, do an episode of, the podcast on it because it's 20th century and it's something I want to learn more about. Um, how about you, Rob? What, what is your longer term relationship with these? Well, I've admired them from a distance. Uh, so this is a, a welcome opportunity to think about them. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to, to get into that question of their origin story uh, as, as distillations of, of texts that, that Holzer would have read at the Whitney ISP program, independent study program, um, or where else they come from or how to situate them. But, but I love the idea of them as prompts and I, I, the notion that they don't lie flat and that they do contain something propositional over and above, uh, you know, the self-evident, the, uh, you know, a truism is, um, is what's so great about them, uh, that, that they're, they're, uh, variously uh kind of outrageous and or banal um and certainly the the chorus of voices contained in them in the aggregate is uh is um is not in agreement and represents this kind of you know room full of people's uh uh uh, possible opinions that we need to grapple with um so yeah i i'm i'm eager to to talk about them with you guys how about you, Isaac? Do you have like a longer term relationship to, to this work? I mean, I was never like bitten by a radioactive truism. <laughs> and then um, 
gained truism power or anything like that my truism sense is tingling private property created crime the first the the reason why i quote that one actually is the first thing that i remember being specifically from them because often uh i think people including many of our listeners um encounter them and sort of don't realize what they are um and that they're like a part of a body of work by an individual artist in part because she's actually um they're in the public domain so they get repurposed all the time but anyway um I assistant directed this um, very strange play called Attempts on Her Life at Soho Rep. And as an opening night present, the director got each of us these postcards, except they were like very thin sheets of plywood and they had a truism printed on them. And the one that I got was private property created crime because he felt like the truisms and the way they worked was sort of uh, rhymed with how that play worked um, and the and the play's own kind of point of view. And uh, so that was my first encounter with them that I remember. Um, but I also find the kind of period of of language art and of treating the words themselves as the work of art really fascinating whether it's you know holzer or of course um barbara kruger i think is someone who comes up in conversation with with jenny holzer's work a lot or the um graphic design work of act up and in particular it's silence equals death um line you know because there were a lot of advertising and graphic design people who worked with act up um and so you know like that's sort of the era in which i grew up i'm born in 1979 so i i sort of feel like i'm i'm in a i'm often in a kind of holzer headspace whether i mean to be or not yeah, I think I, I was looking at at like what are the uses of language that this feels close to, but not necessarily identical with. And I was thinking about the um, uh, Indiana Love statue, and I was thinking uh-huh. about just we did that um, surrealist manifesto episode a few weeks ago, and there's the idea that the thing that you're thinking about as you're going to sleep or as you first wake up, there's some something special about a phrase that you could pull from your mind at that point. Um, and one of the, the ones that um, Breton says is um, there's a man cut in two by a window, uh, which has this feeling that isn't the same as these truisms, but, but it felt like it was in a tradition that could connect those, those two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're really the question of of who is the person who is saying these things, Rob. I think that that's really mm-hmm. one of the things that that just kept on sort of pushing on my brain as I was thinking about these. It, there really isn't a speaker. They're they're anonymous yeah. the way they were first presented. She didn't sign them, or they were first presented just um, being put in posters up all over uh, New York City. And there's a sense that there's not a continuous point of view being presented by all of them, but she isn't saying any of them. I don't think she's asserting any of these things. Well, it's hard to know. Um, it is true that, right, that anonymity and, and thwarting any saint, you know, the, our understanding of any uh, singular voice is, is the goal. And, and I think in her work that, her own voice creeps in in subsequent series. So it appeared the essays come next, which are much more sort of rigidly structured of, you know, hundred words and 20 lines. And there's a bit more of her voice. And then the survival series that comes after is, is, is very much a sort of co- coherent 
uh, worldview politically and, and ethically that, that, um, and those are broad, you know, broadcast on electronic screens and so on. And then, and then after 2001, she stops writing and, and, um, it's, it's appropriated text. Um, but yeah, that is, that is really the question. And it's, and it's that origin story, right? The idea is that she, she sort of bounces around through different colleges in the, in the mid seventies and ends up at RISD. Um, she, she's born in Ohio, like, like me, she, she then finds herself at RISD and she's doing abstract painting, which she likes, but doesn't necessarily, as I understand it, like what she's producing or isn't satisfied with it. And, and turns to language just for the sheer explicitness of it. Um, I, and, point, I saw a, a quote from her that language is a good way to convey meaning, which feels like <laughs> that's very, yeah, it's very nice. I mean, the, the idea that she happens on these, so after RISD, she's at the Whitney independent study program, this kind of legendary program of, of, uh, you know, it's like something that was founded in the late sixties, something like 25 students who, who are either studio artists or curators or critical studies, but anyway, a very, a very heady, um, uh, program under the auspices of the Whitney with a big reading list. And the idea that she sort of distills these truisms from the readings is something that's been mentioned. I don't entirely see that or buy it. I mean, it, the, the, those readings were, would have been, you know, semiotics and structuralism and Frankfurt school. And, and a lot of these are, it's not entirely clear how they come out of that, but, um, but the idea that, that she's responding to sort of Reagan era platitudes and, and, you know, common dumb wisdom, um, that, that feels found, but is something that she's written. Right. I mean, the, um, is, is I think part of what's so interesting about them. Um, well, it's immediately you know. before Reagan, right? Because it's 1978. Mm-hmm. It does feel it does feel very much of a specific time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another thing about that feeling of voicelessness, or a voice, because it's a, they're in all caps. She wants them to be seen, and they they do have an author, as you said, but a sense that she isn't personally asserting any of these things, even though she's trying to make sure that people notice them and says like she says them loud visually um, is that you couldn't actually write more truisms as a different person. It's not like you could make (laughs) your own crucifix or Pieta or something like that. Like you, another artist couldn't, you know uh, like in the grand tradition of Jenny Holzer, here are (laughs) 20 new brilliant truisms like that's not a thing. Like right. they are very much her own thing. Yeah. We're, yeah. They are, they're both anonymous, anonymous and hard to a- appropriate. And I think that, I mean, the, those other examples of artists who have much more of a kind of visual hallmark, this is, this is uh, kind of a limit case for visual art and coming out of conceptualism of, of just pure language. I mean, these are her, 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 you know, her writings have been collected and rendered typographically neutral and, Yes, I think she thinks about the substrates, the sort of media in which they appear, but fundamentally it is writing, it is her writing, um, and it travels in different ways in the world. But uh, yeah, when she first presented them, the idea was that you know, they were unsigned, there was no, yes, there's a discernible visual style, but it's really a very default sort of graphic style. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's I mean, I, you know, we could probably come up with some more here, but, but she, they're, they're so hard to 
uh, co-opt. And that's maybe part of what's made them so durable. Um, it, it's hard to imagine how they could be, you know, what would it mean for them to sell out or to be, uh, I mean, when you're already producing your work on t-shirts and condom wrappers and, and, you know, on electronic, electronic signs, it, it makes it, you know, preemptively hard to steal. Yeah. Well, and you also can't steal something that's in the public domain, right? Like it's, it's all of ours at that point. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, b- b- part of what I find so attractive and, and interesting about it as well is even though to what extent any individual statement is sincere or autobiographical or her POV, you know, is, is obviously like obfuscated. We don't, we don't, we don't know, you know what I mean? The, that I, I do, there's something about how direct each of these are. Um, and, um, you know, particularly as art get, gets more and more abstracted or gnomic <laughs> in some ways over the course of the, the 20th century to then have like, I am making my art and my art is not only does my art make a statement, it is literally a statement like that mm-hmm. is the art on the wall. And, you know, it, it's not a aluminum cube or whatever it is. There's nothing redeeming in toil printed on a poster or a tote bag. Yeah. That lends it a kind of uh, a power by, by, by contrast, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, that that's almost what separates it from any poetic tradition. It feels so much not poetry. It seems like it has a connection, as Rob said, maybe a tenuous connection to literature. Um, and it has a connection to a visual art tradition and it has connection to a lot of different forms of public speech, like advertising, but also like safety messages mm-hmm. and um, like the text at sports games about um, like who's winning that kind of thing and gravestones mm-hmm. and all different forms of um, public writing. Um, but it really well, like, uh, doesn't if you see something. Oh, sorry. What were you saying? Oh, it, sorry, I was just going to say it, it really doesn't feel like it's connected to poetry. Like the way that poetry was practiced. She does later use like uh, lines from poems, but the original truisms don't feel like they're connected to poetry. Yeah. Or, I mean, I think, you know, there's a way in which there's like the, how do I put this? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I think what we're sort of um, scraping up against is that these truisms are, are doing your favorite thing, Catherine, which is that they're, they're being the, the most something and the most it's opposite at the same time. <laughs> so they're the most, thing. it's your favorite thing, right? It's, it's, it's what you want a protagonist to be like Hamlet, right? You know, so it's the most direct and the most obscure right? The, 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 the most commercial and the most anti-commercial or whatever, the most poetic or the most anti-poetic. It's sort of like doing all of those things at the same time. And so that, uh, makes them kind of difficult to, in some ways, difficult to discuss and treat as literature, even on a, on lit century, a podcast where we discuss (laughs) literature. Um, uh, and then there's also, particularly if you go to the, um, you tech, uh, University of Texas has a great has all of them in a list that you can access if if you Google it, um, and and when they're listed alphabetically, the ways they contradict and make each other sort of impossible to judge 
um, is, is really clear once they're all in alphabetical order because variations on the same subject will rub up against each other. So just for example, like here are the ones that start with people. People are boring unless they are extremists. People are nuts if they think they are important. People are responsible for what they do unless they are insane. People who don't work with their hands are parasites. People who go crazy are too sensitive. People won't behave if they have nothing to lose. I want to hear what everyone's favorite truisms are in any case. So those are those are good ones. Yeah, go ahead. I like those because they sound like talking heads lyrics from the exact same. <laughs> like that's the other thing, right? Is that like this is the post-punk moment. 77 is when it starts. It's when it really hits in New York City. And there is a way in which these remind me of, you know, David Byrne lyrics and the lyrics of like music acts of that time. And, so that's and probably why I like the people ones. Yeah. And she says that she's also influenced by, you know, con- you know, the sort of postering of the city that's that the, the existing environment for me of music posters and things like that. There's another alternative origin story that she has or not alternative, just additional that, that, that there's some conspiracy theorist in times square who's po- flyered or postered every surface with some elaborate explanation that, 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 um, theory that that eventuates in leprosy and she just remembers seeing posters with the word leprosy and how that single word you know writ large uh really gets under your skin and is just is just you know hard to forget um and hard to stop thinking about but yeah i think the 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 um question of, of where these live and how they live is i think really interesting across languages on different surfaces, you know, in, in, you know, developing over the years. I don't know if the, if the, I mean, if on, on, on this, you know, uh, uh, logocentric podcast, like this is, you know, seeing them in a list aggregated, you know, by, by on that website is, is one way to look at it, but I don't know that they ever really appeared like that. Right. I mean, there are in, in the late seventies, there are posters that, that list them alphabetically, I think precisely to, um, uh, scramble any sense of, of other hierarchy just to make that a very clear system. And so abuse of power comes as no surprise is, is routinely one of the first, um, alphabetically, but yeah, it's, it is funny to see a huge list of them. Um, and, and, and then on the other hand, to see that there are t-shirts that just have one slogan, um, like, like the one I mentioned, or like, you know, everyone's work is equally important which is, you know, a lovely sentiment, but is, is joined in that, in that, uh, full list by things like, you know, labor is a life destroying activity and, you know, people who don't work with their hands are parasites. So there is something funny, (laughs) there's something funny about, about like pulling one out and deciding that it's, you know, you want to own it and and sort of project it. I mean, that is, that's not just museum gift shop stuff that was original to Holzer's intent. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, but I mean, to me, they live so much better in the aggregate of a big poster, which is the way they appeared and, you know, all around New York. And and they were sort of the sort of surfaces of progressive collage and decollage and annotation and people marking them up and um, never as satisfyingly as I'd hope, because that, you know, it originally was, you know, abusive power should come as no surprise. and, And eventually the, the should got cut, not by a street editor, I don't think, but probably by Holzer herself. Um, but yeah, there's just this question about how and where they live and, and how their, how their force, um, is affected in that way. I was wondering about that should actually, cause I, I noticed in the original, um, 
uh, the 70s one that, that the, the word should is in there. And I was thinking, I'm pretty sure that that wasn't there, but I didn't have time to look it up and really. Yeah, it, it vanished but... very fast. Um, very fast. And, 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 and you know, uh, Holzer had a, there was a, down the street is, is Mass Mocha, um, uh, uh, Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, and there's, a, there's always Holzer work up there, and they just had a benefit auction with a, a kind of a camo trucker cap that she had deterred with the message, don't kill. So, like, you know, just <laughs> just to even do one better than the the Ten Commandments in terms of, you know, brevity is wit, um, is, is a really, really Holzerian move. Um, I mean, it's a good edit. I, I, it's I, a great I, edit. Yeah. <laughs> um what another pairing just uh as we were like in the alphabetical one that i that i like is children are the cruelest of all and children are the hope of the future yeah which just (laughs) (laughs) um not mutually exclusive but yeah (laughs) what no yeah 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 very good (laughs) um so i actually read um, I think this was even, I don't know, I was looking at a bunch of different sources. I think this one was from the Wikipedia page. Um, she hoped that with their prominent and public location, her truisms would make people more aware of what she called the usual baloney they are fed in daily life, which is interesting to me because all of these forms of language that she is in conversation with are apparently things that she scorns. Mm. But, like that she's not... Um, I don't know. I to use my earlier uh, example of like somebody painting a religious painting that is of you know their own religion. In a way, the whole point of it is to show that uh, that the things that she is encountering all the time are absurd and ridiculous, which is also kind of like Talking Heads. Is that you know David Byrne is dressing in a suit and tie not because he loves suits and ties, but because he does not. And he wants to show that they are not all that good. Right. But that is ultimately the art that he is doing or the art that she's doing is in a medium and in conversation with something that the point is to denigrate on some level. Or at least, or at least, or at least deconstruct. Right. I mean, like I remember looking at, um, the listing for I'm going to completely paraphrase this. So please uh, (laughs) listeners don't send me too many angry emails, but um, the listing for the first talking heads concerts at the kitchen, which is a sort of legendary um, performance venue here in New York city. And it's all about how they are an art collective whose work is currently taking the form of a rock band which I wonder if they just did so that they could get a performance at the kitchen. But it's it's very funny to think of it as like starting like that. Do you know what I mean? And, and there is that sense of like, I am doing the thing and examining the thing at the same time that I think is very important to this, um, this moment in New York city art, right. That, that, that how much of it is a put on <laughs> and how much of it is not is sort of part of the, what gives the work um, its charge. Yeah. I, I think, um, yeah, I think the point about deconstructing is, is right. And, 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 and I mean, if this is a moment of donning kind of media or, you know, if this is a moment of media criticality and certainly there are several artists of 
say the pictures generation who are thinking critically about how we um, look at an image saturated, engage with an image saturated culture. And, and that's, that's been going on also through the sixties and fifties um, as well. But if this is about sort of media criticality, you know, in advance of ad busters and thinking just like basically how to parse the messages that are, that are in your face. I mean, I don't think it's that they're all nonsense. Um, and I do think that the artists, I mean, the ones that are most, um, uh, kind of reductive in as, as a matter of style to me sound most like the artist, what I understand the artist to believe, for example, any surplus is immoral, um, or, you know, other things that are really about, uh, cutting to the bone in terms of, um, not social austerity, but, but linguistic austerity. And, and, you know, she says that, that as a, as an Ohioan, as a Midwesterner, it's a, it's about what she says, sort of clean and mean, uh, language, um, Mm -hmm. without a lot of, um, surplus. So I, I think it's, it's about activating, activating a, a, a viewer reader just just to parse and make sense of these messages and evaluate them critically um, and and some of them I mean I think I think she is present in some of them and then becomes more present in in, in the work to come um, um, yeah. to paraphrase what you said uh, elaboration is a form of pollution <laughs> <laughs> and and abstraction is decadence uh, which, which is, you know, is, is rich as she's just come from, from trying to do sort of painterly abstraction. And actually the work will later, you know, the, the redaction paintings of the last, you know, I don't know, 20 years um, are about, about further abstracting, abstracted language um, in, in some cases with sort of geometric abstraction. But, but, but yeah, I think that those sentiments feel true to the, the, the author to me. I don't know. Yeah. And that actually, that's a really good point about what else she's reacting against, that she may be reacting against all of these forms of public language that she thinks of as baloney, um, but something that needs deconstruction, something that needs uh, a a critical eye. Uh, But then it's also a reaction against abstraction and against not saying what you're saying, against obscure obscureness um that that i think is probably of a slightly former generation of her own tradition Mm. opacity is an irresistible challenge well the um we were just talking sorry we were just talking about um the surrealist this was me and sandy talking about the surrealist manifesto and how surrealist art is full of symbols but it's they're always obscure because you personally don't know what that person's symbols all mean because they're like dream symbols Mm. and that you can guess at what they are. But ultimately the feeling of being excluded is one of the aesthetic experiences of surrealist art. But I don't think she's excluding anyone. Like she's very much. um, And I think she says uh, she wants these to be accessible and she wants people to be, uh, her phrase was constructively mystified, <laughs> but that they mm-hmm. have access to all the potential meanings of these words. Yeah. Um, which I think is a reaction against her own forebears. Interesting. They're being so loud. I'm just going to go ask them to be quiet. All right. <laughs>
mixing in the the these the kind of banalities like uh, a little knowledge can go a long way, and technology will make or break us is also uh, a nice folksy move. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, a little hello, welcome back. <laughs> Thank How's you. How's it going? <laughs> Did you tell your kids that absolute submission can be a form of freedom? Uh, they told me that uh, are the cruelest of all. Oh, okay. Well, there, there you we go. go. <laughs> well, you know, and then you told them because they're sons, they're your sons, that a man can't know what it is to be a mother. <laughs> um, they said ambition is just as dangerous as complacency. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, you countered with what's the monomania one? The monomania one. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Monomania and, is a prerequisite of success. See, this is this is good. What we can do is we can we have can a whole just like, do truisms. We could just do truisms like that Star Trek: The Next Generation episode where they where they have to learn the mythology of the planet to communicate to people. Where they're like Darmok. <laughs> Never mind. Neither of you guys watch Star Trek: The Next Generation, so that reference will be lost. Sorry. Anyway, um, no, but there is there there is. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult over the course of this episode to not devolve into just having a dialogue that is the truisms answering each other, which they seem sort of built to do (laughs) on some level. Yeah, asymptotically approaching uh, just really terse little platitudes. Yeah, what I'm interested, you know, uh, Catherine is as someone who I think knows your way around a sentence construction about what you make of the kind of, you know, subject verb object, like the way, the way these work as sentences. I was wondering about what you think of that. I don't know. I, I think that there's something um, like very, very rarely is a sentence constructed like this in published fiction is extremely rare to have a professional novelist. And I would also say probably nonfiction writer actually put one of these sentences together unless it is to make a point kind of like clothing for grown up. Right. very rarely involves a solid primary color at full saturation. Unless you're specifically mm-hmm. like, I am going to wear a bright red coat. That's a thing. But uh, <laughs> even so, usually the, the, those colors will be more nuanced and tempered in some way. These are kind of like primary colors. They're a very strong. Yeah, they thing. feel more like dialogue than expository writing or whatever, right? Like you could imagine a character saying morals are for little people. Or much was decided before you were born, my son, she said. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like they, they do feel spoken in a weird way to me. When no. I or, or is it, I mean, the voice of, the, of, of, of a chorus sort of, I don't know, that, that there's also that to me, not, not a single character, but, but a kind of a, a group. Yeah, totally. I meant, uh, yes, yeah. I meant an individual one when I look at it feels like mm. someone talking or like, so obviously together, cause they represent such different viewpoints. There is a kind of choral, um, feel. I did find myself when I was reading these or rereading them, I should say today to prep for this episode, I started like, like ad lib being melodies to them. I don't know. It's, there's a reading all of them at once is a really weird 
experience that is tough to describe. I can just recommend that our listeners actually just go out and do it because like, I just found myself like coming up with weird melodies for them or, or, you know, they got much funnier all put together. It, it was just a very different experience than, you know, seeing them on a museum wall or as a, you know, sometimes they're programmed LED light, or I guess that's the, the later work, but you know, like sometimes her texts are programmed as LED lights or, you know, just reading them all at once is like a, a very strange experience I find. And she's that, that sort of all at once-ness is something she, she definitely plays with, right. That, that stacked on a poster, um, wheat pasted to a wall is one kind of simultaneity but so too is i mean these yeah these will appear on led uh sort of scrolling marquees and and then you it's it's sort of dosed out in a certain way and then sometimes there's there's a room full of those Mm -hmm. you know there's floor and wall and ceilings or different languages um and and yeah and then the read i mean everything feels more sort of post-human or or uh (laughs) you know it's just the, the the ways that they and sometimes sometimes explicitly so um but yeah, I think the ways they appear have, have a huge, huge bearing on that. Um, and and it, it sort of reminds me about how like like Bruce Nauman did that with audio, right? With mm. recordings of people talking or um, utter speech utterances, I should say. Mm. Um, uh, you know, like like there's lots of people playing around with that idea of like all the different things we can do with language to make a conceptual work of art or a sculpture or or something, even if it's made out of sound waves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the neon. I mean, Nauman's neon signs flashing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. That idea of sort of a false sense of consensus inside the word truism, or inside <laughs> the the feeling of the chorus, rather than a an identifiable narrator who's who's speaking these things, but a feeling that someone is saying these things. It, they feel morally engaged but not moralistic like they're they're you couldn't read even one of these really in isolation and have a real sense that you have come away with like a moral insight even the ones that appear to be saying something moral that the idea that someone else will argue with it also feels built in that somebody else would reasonably have a different perspective on this. They feel ethical. They feel like they're saying something more ethical than like a neon sign that says like, hello, sunshine or something like that, that would probably be sold at like uh, urban outfitters. But unlike something like uh, Barbara Kruger, I think we mentioned earlier, there isn't as much of a sense to me anyway, in these ones in particular, that this is different as she does more work later that she's telling you what to think about these things. I think she's just telling you to think about them at all. Does that Mm -hmm. seem right to you that there's, I mean, it is, yeah, it is funny. The very variousness of, and, and, you know, I would look to you on the, on the sort of literary aspect of this, but some are prescriptive and some are descriptive. Some are like, this is the way it is. And others are, you know, much more thou shalt. Um, But but they, it's, I, I agree with you. They just sort of, um, it just kind of introduces the idea, uh, in, in sort of a bite-sized form for you to, 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 to grapple with. Um, but, but in this, I mean, I think, yeah, in, in a way that you can't, that, that is, um, is bite-sized to account for the sort of the, 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 the tension economy, 
um, mm-hmm. which I think she understands so well and, uh, uh, trying to sort of catch your attention for, for a moment and forcing you, um, I mean, yeah, not, not in a, not in a gallery setting, but in the street or, or, um, in another context, these sort of forcing these ideas into your brain. Um, can I ask how this work was kind of received in its era in the late seventies and in the eighties? Cause I, I, I wanted to just find out like, this is a thing that I sometimes do for research, right? I just went to the the New York Times because I have that, you know, the lovely subscription that gets you access to all of their past issues. And I was like, I'm going to look up everything they said about Jenny Holzer in the 1980s. And it turns out it's like, usually they're describing a group show and they mention that she's in it. There's actually like not a lot about her, which I thought was really fascinating. Or there was a show that had a lot of language art type stuff in it and the reviewer said you know notably absent is jenny holzer so obviously at that by then by the, by 1986 or whatever she was a big enough name that she should have been in it but i i was very interested that there was like no review of a solo show or no interview with her or anything like that so i and i think of her as one of the sort of you know, most important artists who survived that period or is popular from that period. So I'm, I'm sort of curious about, about what the reception was like. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on her. It does. It does seem like it's a pretty quick, um, uptake and, and, uh, really you know, strong early reception that she's showing, um, in galleries, in New York galleries and abroad, um, in group shows and solo shows, you know, in the, in the early eighties, um, such that she has a major touring retrospective in, in the late eight, you know, by 87, she has a show that tours for four institutions, um, and is already kind of has a, a, a you know, s- surveying her career to that point. Um, but yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I think it's at least early on, it's tied up with with you know you you kind of have to know um, what what you're looking at because it's it's appearing you know on a bank lobby wall without mm-hmm. attribution and it and it's, it's so yeah yeah I don't know interesting and she's in the she's in like uh, the Whitney Biennial twice in the eighties right I think mm-hmm. I that yeah so that's that's that's. I mean, in 1990, she she's she is the the represents the United States as the first woman to do so at the at the um, Venice Biennale. Um, right. So so from from like anonymity to this representative function um, is a really uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's, that's several years, but it's it's quite right. remarkable. And and also, you know, the way that she's hand the way that the, her sort of series are built out and and the move also from the ephemeral. Um, you know, from the wheat pasted to the marble etched, uh, and sometimes monumental is, is another kind of shift that's, that's going to happen. I was really interested in that. I thought that she was going to, I thought that that difference was going to weigh on her a lot more than it seems to Mm. have when I was listening to, you know, taped, uh, interviews with her. It was just interesting to me to think, okay, sometimes you have, just a projector where you're projecting words in light onto the ocean. And then other times Mm -hmm. you uh, are etching words into marble. Um, 
but the difference between those in terms of permanence or even perceived permanence, the way that she talks about it is more like, oh, hey, I got a projector. It seemed cool. <laughs> Which is maybe how artists always are. Is the way that they describe their art always seems a little bit more like seat of the pants than it is perceived by somebody who's seeing it, you know, in a museum or whatever more. And, and know, sometimes that's about context. protecting protecting the work from your own interpretation of it. Do you know what I mean? That like sometimes if you say, Oh, this was the experience of it as the artist, then you've, you sort of cut out the audience having their own response to it. And it seems clear to me that to an even greater extent than most people, like her work is designed to provoke an individualized response in the audience that she does not really want to control. Yeah. Yeah. Her work and, and persona. I, mean, I think that the, 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 the kind, but clipped, way in which she speaks about the work is also uh, intended to not divulge too much. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, the, the move to the benches is I think really brilliant. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's sort of a perfect, a perfect format for the 1980s to me. It feels it's, it's kind of Pomo it's, you know, the material is ostentatious and, and luxurious in some ways, but it's somber and spare and funerary and in, in, in obvious ones. I mean, she's, she's having monument, uh, uh, makers sort of, you know, outsourcing this to them to, to fabricate. And, and it's, it's got this kind of post minimalist language this sort of trabiated, you know, super simple three part form. It's, it's found object. And when they're together, you get also, you know, sequence and seriality, and yet, you know, but it also connects to this kind of great art historical memento mori tradition. And, and I think, I mean, I work in a museum that has, we have five benches here. They're just on long-term loan from the artist who lives 30 minutes away, um, who, who I've never met. Uh, but in our context, I mean, there's nothing wheat pasted on a wall. It's actually a much posher setting and, and a marble bench from afar looks totally normal. So it's, there's still, I mean, I see them performing this kind of guerrilla function Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, of surprise uh, every day. I mean, pe- people who are about to sit down on them and then start reading um, sometimes appalling, uh, sometimes uh, perplexing uh, messages. It, it still still works. Yeah, I'm looking at an image of one right now and the thing written on it is, the future is stupid. <laughs> I love that one. I love that one. And yeah, and that, that was originally, I believe that was from the survival series, which is meant to really be in her voice. And was originally for electronic signs, but mm-hmm. but yeah, in, you know, in, in LEDs, it's one thing. In, in sort of a serifed Roman uh, uh, etched uh, you know, lettering on on marble, it's another. I love that one. Another function that I see them perform in the age of Twitter, and I, I should say that there is a bot on Twitter that tweets one of her aphorisms. You know, every few minutes, and if you mention her, it will send one to you. Like if I were to tweet, I'm doing, I'm recording an episode about Jenny Holzer today. The Jenny Holzer bot would be like, you live the surprise results of old plans. At <laughs> um, but there's a way in which, you know, the, the, the truism or the survival uh, series saying or whatever that, that you have on your social media bio, like it's now a weird personality test. It seems to me in a weird way. Like I have claimed this one but not these other ones. You know what I mean? Like very few people, 
lots of people have, you know, Twitter banner images with, with certain holes or quotes, but none of them have spit all over someone with a mouthful of milk. If you want <laughs> to find out something about their personality fast, right? right? That's not the statement I want to tell you about myself because the statement that I'm telling you, if I say that is that I am nuts. Um, <laughs> Although I think I might, that's not from truisms. That's, that's, that's survival. That's right. So no, 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 no. I know. I'm just saying, you but know, I like that that actually is, she's claiming that seemingly as, yeah. as a good personality test. <laughs> yes, totally. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas instead you might have repetition is the best way to learn <laughs> on your, you know, social media page or something. Well, but the social media but, bio is an interesting form of public speech that, to my knowledge, she hasn't been in conversation with or co-opted in any way that people want to use her words as social media bios, but not necessarily, it, it, but it's like a context where we're all trying to make truisms about ourselves. Um, right. That we're all trying to do some little bit of public speech that will uh, attract the eye and the attention in a, in, in a sense, project like more than is uh, more than is in the like five or ten words, more tension, yeah. more sort of interest. Um, yeah. yeah, there. I was thinking about ways that she belongs to a really specific time, uh, or this particular work. I think we've talked about how this particular work belongs to a time, but there was one of the uh, interviews that I was watching where she's talking about. Um, a time when Mariah Carey performs in front of some of her work. And I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the absolute specifics. The thing that I remember is the way that she describes the idea of Mariah Carey performing near her work, um, that it's amazing. And that it's kind of like, isn't life weird that Mariah Carey could perform next to the work of someone like me, which is in theory, not saying anything bad about Mariah Carey or anything bad about herself, but just that they're irreducibly dissimilar. And I was thinking that that's one of the ideas that's wrapped up in these truisms is that it is not pop culture. It might be street art. It might be uh, in conversation with advertising. It might be in conversation with all of these different forms, but it's irreducibly high art in mm. from a time that really believes that there is a difference between high art and pop culture. Um, and I don't even know if those are the terms that she personally would own. I just think that there's something inside this that she doesn't think anyone is going to confuse what she's doing with real true pop culture. Hmm. And it's funny. I think that 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 Mariah Carey scene is I, I, maybe from when the Guggenheim Bilbao opened, which was all about creating this kind of spectacle that would that would you know make make a place uh, through art. Um, and yeah, right. The way she presented it was like you know that's that's funny and that's kind of cool. Um, I, I, it, but it's not. Uh, you know, she also has her has her work you know, up at Dallas Cowboys games, uh, on the jumbotron. Um, and I, you know, I think that's, I think, I think she always wants to get really, really, really close to that line. Um, but still does believe that there is, as you say, a line. I think that she really believes there's a line. And I think that it's like, a it's a line that 
that has tension inside it. So she wants to approach it. But I think that if she were, let's say, born in 1978, as opposed to starting these in 1978, my sense is that that there's um, there's less tension in that line now than there used to be. Yeah, yeah, Partly yeah. Because I think that nobody quite believes in. It's like it's like both optimism, like oh maybe pop culture is better than we thought, but also there's a lot less belief that high art could save us either. That mm-hmm. that the moral uh, the moral intensity inside this or the the idea that you could make someone think about something more ethically with your art. And like, I don't think anyone really believes that either necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, um, anything about her, her personal views on this subject, but I definitely agree that the, it's hard to imagine the truisms coming out of a moment when people didn't believe that line existed. Exactly. I think, you know what I mean? Like, 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 because there's a way in which they're in dialogue with that line, trying to pierce that membrane, you know, take, take the statement out of the gallery and literally into the streets. Um, but maintain some of the gnomic reserve of high art at the same time, because again, it's the most of one thing and the most of its opposite simultaneously, which is why you love it. Um, you know, and it is interesting to look at how the work evolves as that line erodes and erodes, right? Because if once we get to the survival series, you know, as, as you pointed out earlier, Rob, you're getting work that is more, at least supposedly sincere and is, is things she actually believes. And then if you get up until, you know, the very recent time you have, um, trucks with led signs on them, telling people to go vote, <laughs> you know? So there's a way in which they get more direct, more political, more sincere, um, uh, uh, as they go along. And as that distance between, um, pop and high art or whatever, um, erodes, it seems to me. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's, 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 um, the, the, right. The, the trucks that say go vote. Um, I mean, the, the precursors in the, in that she's already in the mid eighties, she's using what is, what is a new technology, um, or at least an impressive one of, of having basically jumbo tri jumbotron size, uh, displays that can go on a truck and, and actually turning it into sort of a people's forum to express views on, on the election. There's something about the, the go vote signs that feel, you know, in the last few years, to me at least, much so much weaker for, for an artist who who has such sharp cutting sharpness under a presidency that, you know, exhibited every one of the the deadly sins uh and, you know, every sort of existential fear is dialed up to eleven. Like that it wouldn't be about direct action or, you know, and civil disobedience. I mean something it, it, it that that felt um corny that's what felt sorry oh corny i suggested yeah 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 a bit i mean it's funny though those are also those are that is a continuous line of of messaging of a certain kind whether it's sort of um uh glib or or authentic and and about you know moral suasion but then there's also the work of of disclosing documents obtained under you know through foia requests from the national security archive that is you know that is attempting to make an intervention into 
um, you know, political, the, the sort of the, the political decision making inform, you know, informed informed consent of the populace and and sort of you know dealing in secrets and aestheticizing them sometimes only slightly, um, but that that is feels to me like a, a, a distinct chapter um, trying to intervene in reality a bit more. Yeah, I think that the um, the gravestones she made for um, people who had died of AIDS um, in the 80s, I think. I think that that was an early example of her using her format for very direct political, interpersonal, like there's no irony, there's no reserve. It's just... It's it's like the opposite of what a, a gravestone usually does, which is to kind of hide or like make palatable the fact that there's a person who's gone and they're under the ground now. And that she was sort of like using that format to reverse that and like have a person's uh, fear of death and desire to live and uh, anger at a society that has betrayed them so much to to put that into words and put that onto the gravestone. I think that she has been very direct in in works like that, which makes it, I guess, as you were saying, just surprising that that voting would be sort of where she ends up in this time. I mean, but sure, like we should vote. Vote right, right. We should vote for your health. That's what one of them says, or vote joyously. That's what another one says, Ooh. right? <laughs> vote early etc I do think or at least I hope that that kind of work grows out of a distinct sense of crisis and the crisis being so great that matters of taste sort of are irrelevant you know what I mean like I, I, to me that's what that grows out of um, and um, I don't know that I agree with that necessarily but um but yeah, that, that's sort of how it seems to me is that that hopefully this is sort of like an acute moment and we'll see how her um, gift for aphorism changes as as our nation and politics change over the next few years. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. I do think that she's um, one of the artists that I really like following her whole development. I, you know, kind of like we, we just had Bob Dylan's birthday yesterday while we were recording this. And I was just, you know, musing on how nice it is to, to see artists through all of the phases of their, it, like their, their mental life, their engagement with the world and in, in all these different ways. And I think she's one of those artists who, who just keeps changing in interesting ways. Absolutely. that's our Holzer episode. Thank you to Rob for joining us, and as always, to Adam Bear for our music and to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. <laughs> <laughs>